Hi, and welcome to Second Rate Film School. I'm Andrew, and today we have a very special guest star, writer and animation guru, Lance Falk. Welcome to the show. Hey, everyone. I could list off everything he's done, but one, we're going to get to anyways, and two, that would probably take like 10 minutes. You've worked on a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff, so I'm very excited to be able to talk to you. Thank you. So, um, all right, well, starting off with a softball question here, um, what got you into the world of animation? Well, uh, when I was a little kid, I would definitely point the finger really, really hard at, uh, like a Harrison Ford finger point, at uh, Johnny Quest when I was a little guy. Um, it came out when I was two, but it always re-ran, so I probably saw it around four or five, and it, it grabbed me like nothing, nothing else. So I like to blame Johnny Quest for my great interest in animation, but along came a lot of things like any kid, like um, the Looney Tunes, uh, you know, the theatrical shorts that would run on the TV. On the TV, I sound so old. Uh, any Hanna-Barbera thing before 1969, I really love. Uh, so uh, Space Ghosts and Herculoids and one reason I like these shows so much is they, they recycle the Johnny Quest music and voice actors. So that, that helped me love them. Those are my early cartoon uh, loves. So you started working with Hanna-Barbera, as your background would imply, um, in 1984. Um, at this point, they had already had seven mega hits um, across the several decades. You know, you had Tom and Jerry earlier on, but then in television you had you know, Flintstones, Jetsons, Scooby-Doo, uh, and of course, Johnny Quest. Your time with them ended kind of coinciding with them being fully acquired and absorbed into Warner Brothers. So right. what was the atmosphere in those years you were there, kind of being from when Bill and Joe were still on top there to being under the thumb of Warner Brothers, so to speak? Well, I, I, I have kind of complex feelings about that um, for a few reasons. One was I have a tremendous... Uh, love and brand loyalty for Hanna-Barbera. But by the time I started there, they weren't doing their best work in the mid eighties. And, um, and the Warner Brothers, uh, you know, that started in the late eighties, early nineties was hitting it out of the park with everything, Animaniacs and Tiny Toons and Batman. So when, and I ended up kind of bouncing back and forth between the two a little bit, ping-ponging, and then they became one entity. Uh, I'm not the glue <laughs> or anything like that, but it just worked out that way. Um, also because a lot of Hanna-Barbera people went over to Warner Brothers. So there was, there was a lot of cross recruitment. Um, we did the Scooby-Doo movies that we'll be talking about, I'm sure, um, at both companies. There was actually a transition on, I think the third movie that I co-wrote called Alien Invaders may have been, you, somebody can fact check me, but may have been the very, very last thing that said a Hanna-Barbera production on it, per se, where from then on it was like uh, the Warner logo at the beginning. Um, they still all say, you know, created by Hanna-Barbera and so forth. Um, but uh, under their thumb, I would say by the time the companies were kind of merging, that Bill and Joe and also Iwo Takamoto were, were uh, beloved figureheads, but they weren't really hands-on in production. They were doing a lot of publicity work for the studio, a lot of signings. Iwo was doing a lot of uh, artwork for the galleries. And so um, they hadn't really run anything in a long time, per se. There was a, there was a shorts program that Fred Seibert, uh, when he was running, running uh, HB, that he initiated and Bill and Joe actually got to make new brand new animated shorts, which they had in a long, long time. But I think it wasn't a, like a light switch. It was a steady, oh, I guess we're not, we're not really running things anymore, you know? I remember watching Hard Luck Duck back then. And even as a kid being able to notice it was pretty unique compared to the rest of the What A Cartoon shorts. It was clearly new looking, but the designs and everything still looked like um, a 1940s short, and now I know why. Well, well, Joe's, uh, or Bill's Lucky Duck, I mean, that was Yaki Doodle, you know, just kind of re reworked, so. And then Joe was doing Dino cartoons, did a couple Dino shorts, so. 
There you go. Now, briefly going back to Johnny Quest, which you said had such a huge influence on you, both as a young boy and as an adult, um, you had a bit of a relationship with Doug Widely. Can you shed some light onto that? Sure. Well, I, I love Doug to pieces. Um, he was definitely like, I never really knew my own grandparents. And he was definitely, he and Ellen were like the grandparents I'd always wish you could wish for. And uh, I met him through uh, the famous comic book artist, Steve Rude, who's a really, you know, real hotshot famous comic book guy and a good friend of mine. And he introduced me to Doug and Doug and I hit it off really well. Doug is a, was a great character, very irascible, funny, funny guy and took a, took a liking to me. Uh, I guess. And when my, um, my mother moved to Las Vegas, uh, the Wildies were living in Vegas. So whenever I'd visit my mom, I'd, I'd always make a little side quest, you know, and see the Wildies. And um, I just, you know, love seeing them and talking to them. And, and I remember being in, a, in the Warner Brothers uh, studio, uh, working on Animaniacs, and it was pre-cell phone and even didn't have individual phones on our desks. And so if you got a call, you'd be paged over the PA that you had a phone call and you had to go out to the lobby and pick up the phone. And one day, you know, I got paged and I went and picked the phone up and it was Steve Rudy says, dude, Doug just died, you know, and I was like crying <laughs> in the, in the hallway, but uh, sweet man, really, really talented, definitely made my best, my favorite show. And, um, it's funny when you talk to him about it, he, he had a million stories and uh, he was actually more fond of his, the Patty Freeling Planet of the Apes series than he was Johnny Quest. And I think that's because he didn't get into arguments with anyone, he just did whatever he wanted, where he and Joe would clash a lot on Quest, you know, over creative issues. And I think a lot of great work comes out of a situation like that, certainly like the Beatles and the Burn Claremont X-Men. I mean, there's a lot of conflict in those collaborations. And I think they challenge the other and bring out the best in each other. Bill and Joe, you could say that about. So Doug and um, Doug and Bill had a lot of <laughs> a lot of interesting conversations. And the result is I think the greatest uh, adventure show ever made in America, even to this day. You're quite the Johnny Quest aficionado, having even been featured on the DVD special features for the original series. When you're looking for action, you can't do better than Johnny Quest. And to date, working on the last major iteration of the franchise, Johnny Quest The Real Adventures, which we'll get into, having penned eight episodes of the second season. So what do you think makes Johnny Quest such a cultural touchstone that's lasted the test of time for 60 plus years, while other Hanna-Barbera shows have faded into the background? Though paradoxically, the show really has not had much of a presence in the past 30 years. Outside a 2015 direct-to-video crossover movie with Tom and Jerry, and a short-lived comic book series from 2016 to 2017. So what do you think is the story behind that? Well, uh, again, it's kind of a complex answer with uh, Real Adventures was uh, kind of in a lot of ways a disaster from the get-go because there was an original team that was hired when they really should have hired the team I was on. And they, uh, they went through a lot of money and a lot of time without having a finished episode to show for it. And I can talk artistically what I thought about that material, you know, trying not to use swear words, but art is subjective. I'm just gonna say that from a business standpoint, uh, you're either a responsible producer and deliver the goods or you're not and don't. And so they were, um, they were walked off the lot after two and a half years and $11 million or something without having produced a single arable episode. They had a lot of bits and pieces. And so our team was said, oh, why don't you guys do it? And we were sort of like, you know, we begged you to let us do it. And now we're all scattered to the four winds at different studios. And also you're going to be looking at us with a, through a microscope because you let them get away with murder. You're not going to make that mistake again. And that's hard to work like with a lot of supervision. And even though we're responsible um, uh, producers or a responsible team, 
they, they, you know, that wouldn't fly. So there was a little back and forth and Davis Doy said, okay, here are the circumstances. I would come back and do it. We would have to, I wanted a few people on that have to be on my team of which I was one. Um, and I was working at Warner brothers by then. Um, I, you know, they have to be paid a certain amount of money because they're going to be really rushed and, um, you know, we'd have contracts. We had, um, we did not like any of the previous team's material at all. We wanted to change the model sheets, the voice actors, music, pretty much everything. And they're like, no, no, you can't do that. They air back to back. And that'll confuse people if they kind of change in appearance and stuff. He said, well, we're not interested in doing their version. We don't like it, you know, and so they went away and they asked around and it turns out nobody wanted to touch that job. And so they came back to us and we kind of renegotiated and um, were able to do it. And one of the negotiation points that I raised was uh, Doug's name had been removed from the back end of the show. So it used to say created uh, based on characters created by Doug Wildey. And that credit had been stripped. It was stripped off the 1984 version of the show which is actually the very first thing I worked on in the business. And um, so I said, he, you know, Doug gets his credit back, you know, as one of the negotiating tools. And by then they were kind of desperate because uh, uh, all these deals were struck with Galoob toys and all these licensees and they were tooling up and they were making product and they were going to have it launch at the same time the show did. And the show was like not going to launch and the studio could have been sued you know, pretty, pretty heavily if they didn't have a product to go along with all this licensing stuff. So um, the answer to the answer to the problem of getting all these shows done and making up all the lost time was we had four full-time producers. And usually a show has one, one main producer, like Animaniacs with several units had Rusty Mills, one guy running the units. We had four guys running units. Two of them, uh, uh, Kaz Anzalotti and John Ng, had the thankless task of taking all the previous material and trying to make finished episodes out of essentially garbage. And um, the fact that they're remotely coherent is a testament to their, their really hard work. They were throwing away scenes that were completely animated because the stories didn't work at all. They had to rewrite, re-storyboard sections. And then we had, and they did 26 split between the two of them. And then the other set run by Davis Doy and uh, Larry Houston, we did another 26, we were able to tweak the models, change the voice actors, actually write stories that were on premise, which the other ones weren't. Um, they thought they were doing X-Files, you know, and we, knew we were doing Johnny Quest. And uh, so, so it was really frantic for about two years where we had four teams going full out. And they even clipped off 13 episodes from the back end. It was gonna, meant to be an original order of 65 and they cut 13 off that. And uh, so the show is as good as anyone could have made it under the circumstances. I think some of the episodes are actually really good. Uh, some of them are saddled with first season ideas like the CGI Quest World nonsense. Uh, but we, you know, we're obligated because of the toy deal to put that in the shows, that kind of thing. And um, our models couldn't be too different from theirs, and our voice actors couldn't be too different. But we did the best job we could under the circumstances. I remember, like, even though I was a little kid. They were hyping the hell out of that show. Um, yeah. I remember one Scooby-Doo VHS I had. It basically had no finished animation, just mostly production sketches and hyping the new CGI technology in the show and using vague buzzwords to, I guess, attract kids who that meant really nothing to at the time. A place of extraordinary worlds, fascinating adventures and mind-bending mysteries. A mythical journey where treasures and legends are discovered by true heroes and vengeful villains. Epic storytelling, embracing a level of realism 
never before seen in a cartoon. With Prepare Yourself for an all-new look in animation. Prepare yourself for the all-new adventures of Johnny Quest. And it's like watching now, it's like, oh, I don't know what this show is actually about. And I know what Johnny Quest is. And appropriate enough, I have an old Scooby-Doo comic which featured a full-page ad for the show, highlighting the unbelievability of this version and just hyping it up. Well, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on a limb here and say that if our team were the first team hired and we had the resources and the studio might behind us that they had that they blew, they squandered, um, I think it's a possibility Hanna-Barbera would have had a giant hit and would have been considered a viable entity the way Cartoon Network is a viable entity separate from Warner Brothers, even though they're owned by Warner Brothers. I think if we got to do Johnny Quest, that might have happened with Hanna-Barbera, where they would have had three independent studios. But because Johnny Quest was a great expense and it didn't do well, um, uh, one reason is they aired the bad ones first, even though we told them not to, they aired the bad ones first and it really turned off the old viewers and the new viewers, you know. And so by the time ours showed up, no one was watching it. And it's, you know, I tell people, just watch the second season and you'll actually see what the show maybe could have been. Now, do you think that's part of the reason why, you know, Warner Brothers has been kind of scared off of trying to do anything with the property really? A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that was considered uh, a big misstep. Now, I was working a series of Tom and Jerry direct video movies years and years later for a fellow named Spike Brandt, who's a great guy, very talented guy. And the premise of the Tom and Jerry movies was Tom and Jerry would have an adventure with somebody famous because they don't really talk. So, but they can join Robin Hood or go to, go to Oz or do these adventures. And they're kind of helping behind the scenes. And it's from their point of view. And Spike was begging, please let us do Johnny Quest. You know, let's do, and, and um, it took him, I think two years to be allowed to do a Johnny Quest, uh, Tom and Jerry, because Tom and Jerry was the, the selling point. And I can, I can just say from a design standpoint, the characters had to be, Dan Haskins, a brilliant designer, had to cartoon them up a little bit to fit in that world, but there was still a Doug Wildiness to the drawings. But the backgrounds and the props, I was doing the props, are, were like, look at the 1964 show and do exactly that make it look as close to that as you can. Boy, I had fun doing that, you know, because it was, oh, we're doing the hovercraft and the jetpacks and the dragonfly jet and that, that, all those things. And they were like right on model. So that was fun. But it's still a Tom and Jerry comedy, you know. Now, you also worked on the cult hit show SWAT Cats, The Radical Squadron, appropriately enough with future Scooby-Doo collaborators Glenn Leopold and Jim Stenstrom. Penning six of the episodes. Now, I don't recall the show being on too often as I got older to watch it, but I loved watching it when I could, and now watching it as an adult, I really love this show. Despite having a very unique anime look, it's still very clearly Western in execution. It's probably one of the most badass-looking cartoons I've ever seen. Yeah, we had, we had a ball making that. The uh, show creators are a, a pair of brothers from uh, Canada, the French-Canadian guys, the... Tremblay brothers, Yvonne and Christian, they came, they have a great drawing style. They came in, we tried to honor that drawing style as much as we could, and they're really wacky ideas. And then uh, had to make, had to, you know, turn them into something that could be produced as a cartoon. Uh, but we had, we had a ball making that show because it was, it was this explosive action and kind of anime and, and, um, uh, rock and roll 80s guitar solo music and things and just mo giant monsters and we had, we had a ball making that thing um, it was a little too violent for I hear this for Jane Fonda the wife of Ted Turner at the time who ran it who owned everything and it kind of hurt the show <laughs> like like she was a little offended by by uh you, we blew up and shot a lot of monsters on that show. So they kind of buried it, you know, like seven, six in the morning or something. 
I'll, I'll say to your audience, if you like Ninja Turtles, you'll love SWAT cats because it's the same milieu, but it's a lot better. You know, it has more style, better. It's just sharper, the characters are more distinctive, but it's in that, there. it's funny animal action show, but I think SWAT cats absolutely kicks its ass, you know, as far as shows go. So, uh, but we got a couple of seasons out of it and the creators are out there still, they own the TV rights and they're still trying to get it done and uh, trying to get a reboot made somewhere, anywhere. And that'd be great because they'd be brought back as a writer, as with Glenn. Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, and I love everything that like was coming out of Hanna-Barbera at that era, mainly because I was a little kid. So you love everything that you were a little kid. But, um, you know, I mean, really looking at all the other stuff that was coming out, I mean, you know, that's when you start shifting into like, you know, Warner Brothers starting to slowly eke its way in. But I really put this and like Halloween Tree as like the true swan songs of yeah. Hanna-Barbera. Yeah. They're really hidden gems, and I think they should be remembered a hell of a lot more than they are. Now we're going to get to the meat of the episode. We're going to talk about your involvement with all the Scooby-Doo movies. Now, I'm not the hugest Scooby-Doo fan by any means. It's not like I have a ton of these things just sitting by me at any random time. No, that would be ridiculous. I don't have that much Scooby-Doo stuff with me. Don't be silly. I still remember in 1998 hearing that they were making a brand new Scooby-Doo movie I still remember seeing the first teaser for Zombie Island when they said, This time, the monsters are real. And it scared the shit out of me, and I love it so much to this day. So, you worked on all four of them in various different capacities, and we'll get into Alien Invaders. Um, we'll be the bulk of this in a moment, but how did you um, get involved in the team that worked on all these? Well, uh, producer Davis Doyle is very loyal to his crew his core crew and if they do a good job for him he keeps hiring them and luckily i'm part of that nucleus uh with uh, jim stenstrom and glenn leopold and other people uh drew gentle is a background designer who is on everything um there and so our team kind of formed over swat cats then we went to johnny quest then we went to Scooby-Doo. And so uh, for a little while, we were a little development team. They couldn't really get anything off the ground. Um, but uh, at some point, you know, we were a viable crew that could do a show. So they were doing interviews with uh, moms in supermarkets, like uh, trying to get the Q factor. The Q factor is how recognizable this or that is with the general public, the non-fan, right? And Scooby scored through the roof. Scooby, every mom knew who Scooby-Doo was, like any mom would know who Mickey Mouse was. And uh, so uh, based on that research, that kind of market research, they said, well, we, we should really do Scooby-Doo. We're looking for direct-to-video projects. So let's do a Scooby-Doo one, see how it goes. And that was Zombie Island. And our team was just available. So they threw us on it. And I would say Glenn Leopold is the biggest fan out of the core group of guys over Davis and Jim and myself. Because uh, he, he's really into it and had written a lot of Scooby-Doo by then. And so um, they gave to our crew and Zombie Island outperformed everybody's wildest dream. And so that was, we just became for a while, the guys that make the Scooby-Doo movies. And we did the first four and then uh, somebody else took over from there and did a couple and somebody else took over from there, et cetera, et cetera. Seems like a crew only lasts like four or five of those movies for some reason. And they're still making them. I know I'm biased because I grew up with them, but um, yeah, I think that's probably the, you know, best thing that came out of the Scooby franchise since, like, at the time, the original show and was not surpassed or even met to, I should say, until Mystery Incorporated came out in, like, the early right. 2010s. So right. those four, like, and we'll get into them, you know, lesser quality with um, the fourth one, in my opinion, and evidently yours. 
Um, but still, they're really solid movies, and you know that's why I, I'm not a usual hoarder of VHS technology still, but God, I, I even when I got these on DVD, I still couldn't get rid of them. They're, they're still such great films. Um, so, you know, going into them, though, um, what I think makes these four very interesting is they were the first that took supernatural elements very seriously where they were actually real. Now, in the 80s, you had Boo Brothers and Reluctant Werewolf and the 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo where the supernatural was real, but it was played for as goofy as, you know, the rest of the show. And in fact, you know, you could say that the fake monsters in the original show were more scary than the actual monsters in the new stuff in the 80s. That whole gang of go gazoots doing the werewolf rock. Hey, Mr. Jangles rocks all night. Falls apart about daylight. Frankenstein, he's dynamite doing the werewolf rock. What was the process like, you know, deciding, like, we're going to have the monsters this time be real in these movies and go a little shade darker on these instead of just doing a traditional Scooby movie? Well, I, 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 I apologize that I've told this story before on uh, another podcast or two, but there was a seminal meeting when we were given the job. And uh, the main thing was that this is the first time Scooby was a long form story that it was 22 minutes with commercials or 30 minutes with commercials, making it 22. And it was uh, Davis, uh, Glenn, Jim, and myself. And Jim raised his hand and he, cause we're really at the nucleus of like creation. And Jim says, you know, I'm, I'm tired of all this fake unmasking stuff. And can we do real monsters? Jim's Jim really likes monsters, you know. And he said, the other thing is, um, uh, I just, you know, haven't we done that already? And Glenn Leopold, traditionalist, big Scooby fan says, now hang on a second. The Scooby fan wants a mystery they can solve and they want the unmasking at the end because that is the premise of the show. And... I and Davis said, well, here's the thing about the, the half hour versus the 90 minute or the 70 minute is you can kind of jerk somebody's chain or pull their leg for 22 minutes and have it not real. But if you do it for 70 minutes and then it's not real, it feels like kind of a cheat, it feels like a letdown. And um, um, no, it's anticlimactic at that point because you really strung them along and either the mystery has to be so complicated that no one will get it or so simple that everyone will get solve it immediately and both those are bad things so you had to find that balance and i'm the fourth guy in the room and i raised my hand and of everything i did on those movies this is what i consider my real contribution um uh, beyond the other three guys who were invaluable and amazing was I said, well, we have to do both. We have to have a real mystery to solve, but we have to thicken the broth by having real monsters in it also. And the gang's following clues from one thing and they're really revealing things from the other, but the audience really thinks it's kind of one story, but it's really two that are weaving in and out of each other. And that way, everybody will get what they want. Um, and so a really good example is actually the second movie, uh, which is Ghost, where it starts with, uh, uh, you know, mystery, and this town is being haunted by this witch's ghost. And it turns out to be like everyone in the town is in on this one thing to create tourist revenue. That goes for all of you. All of you? Sure, there had to be more people involved to make this hoax work. But they're all everything they're doing is based on an actual town legend. And in the story, they unleash the real witch's ghost. So the third act, okay, we've solved the mystery, but here's the real supernatural threat we have to combat. Thou hast freed me, so now I can punish the world for my long imprisonment. I shall create an era of doubt. 
darkness over this land. <laughs> so you see, you get both things in there. And, um, and that became our uh, recipe. Uh, if you look at Zombie Island, there were some unmaskings, but there was making fun of unmaskings, like Fred's, Fred's you know, trying to pull the mask off a zombie, but it's a real zombie, and he pops his head off. Maybe it's real. This isn't just a one-off joke poking fun at the franchise's long-running trope of the monster being a man in a mask. It's actually the reason why the gang breaks up at the beginning of the movie. You know, the real reason I changed jobs was because the monsters and ghosts always turned out to be bad guys in a mask. Got a little boring, eh? <laughs> no kidding. In fact, that's why the gang went their separate ways. And additionally, it's brought back again when we see a montage of the gang going back solving mysteries, and again, it just being people in masks over and over again. Though we do get a really kick-ass song pointing this out as well. Another cool attack, he's breathing down our backs, so we're making tracks for the exit. Oh, the ghost is here, is a crook in a suit. The ghost is here, he's protecting salute. The ghost is here, I give him the boot, he's fake. And so that's, uh, that's a good way of cross-pollinating the two uh, stories. They're great. And actually, to your point with Witch's Ghost, I remember I actually, get, at that point, was renting these before they were premiering on Cartoon Network. I thought that was really cool. I'm like, wait, I get to see it before it comes out. And I remember seeing the box art, and Sarah, Sarah's ghost is on it, and she looks nothing like the ghost that is featured, you know, throughout the initial, you know, mystery of the townsfolk. Right. And I'm like... Why doesn't she look anything like that? I was very confused. I'm like, oh, I guess the movie's over now. And then it's like, no, it kept going. And yeah, that blew my you know, little like seven-year-old mind. I'm like, oh my God, what is going on? And yeah, um, yeah no, they were, they were all great. And it's like, yeah, re-watching them as an adult, um, even though I know where they're going, it actually is very compelling mysteries, even if yeah. that's not where technically the story is ending you know right. obviously oh no there's actually real zombies and cat people and you know there is actually a you know evil witch that the town doesn't think is actually real aliens viruses etc um yeah no they're all great and you know even as a kid i could tell there was a definite dip in um quality slash you know tone when it went on to after the first four movies at the time i initially chalked it up to oh, I guess I'm getting old for cartoons now. Little do I know I'm going to become a man-child at some point and still watch cartoons nearing 30. <laughs> so you guys, you know, you really had, like, the Midas touch on them. Um, and I guess that was as good as time as any to go into Alien Invaders, which you helped co-write. And I wasn't sure if it was going to mention this or not, but I still have my children's book of Alien Invaders. Nice. And right on the cover, it mentions you and um, Glenn on it, that you guys did the story on it. So I'm like, oh, holy crap. I've had that for you know, nice. 20 plus years now. And your name was right there on the cover the entire time. So um, that's great. Um, yeah, Alien Invaders, as a little kid, I think I go back and forth in my memory whether I liked um, Cyber Chase a little more than it or it more than a little Cyber Chase. But as an adult now, I think it might be my favorite out of the four movies. Um, I just love like the you know backgrounds of like the New Mexico or whatever southwestern state we're actually supposed to be in desert. And one thing I actually would like to talk about is I think the love story between Shaggy and Crystal is one of the sweetest aspects of the entire franchise, and it's a highlight of the movie personally to me. Thank you. So, what was writing a love story for a character like Shaggy, who really outside of Scooby and food has never shown a like for anything? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's why I did it, um, because you, they hadn't really explored that corner of it. Uh, the obvious couple is Fred and uh, Daphne. So, Freddy, why do you always pair us up? Uh, well, I've thought about that for the longest time, and there's never been a good time to tell you. Maybe it's time that I, well, that I, hey, here they come. And um, depending on how hard they want to hit that particular story, but that's 
clearly what's going on and the subtext of Velma is, you know what the subtext of Velma is, <laughs> so we won't, won't say it, but, but that kind of that left, uh, I, I thought the idea of Shaggy and Scooby completely transforming by being in love and Shaggy slicking his hair back and, you know, Scooby the little bouffant. I thought that was really funny. I've never seen you with your hair combed or your shirt tucked in. It was just a funny, fun idea. I think it's as good a time as any to mention that Shaggy is so smitten with Crystal, he actually sings one of the best songs in the franchise, and that's saying something, about how much he's in love with her. I met by chance a girl in bell-bottom pants, and she likes to say, Groovy. She came out of the blue, and in an instant I knew everything would be groovy. For her I'd climb a mountain, swim the deepest ocean, I'd even help her shopping, that's the depth of my devotion. Though, as we soon find out, this relationship might be too good to be true. Also, our real monster, of course, wasn't a monster. Our real monster were these really sweet aliens. And um, so just, you know, subverting everyone's expectations. Um, um, a thing, a trick in the beginning, like I was talking about how you have two stories that cross-pollinate, is in the opening credits, you see the point of view of a flying saucer heading towards Earth past outer planets. You clearly see that, what's going on. And that flying saucer buzzes the mystery machine, which spins out and crashes. And um, so, like, we lay it out. It, aliens are real in this thing. So, so on, the, on the title of the film. And so, um, and of course, invaders is a lie. You know, they're not invaders. And so um, the very next thing you see is when, uh, uh, you know, Shaggy and Scooby are alone, these aliens on hovercraft show up. Now they're really the fake guys, but you saw a flying saucer, now you've seen aliens, you're gonna naturally connect the two. So um, it's a way of getting, leading you down a path to think they're real. And turns out they're not. And then this cute hippie chick and the dog you know, are really the aliens. The big, um, the big clue is that they're hippies from the 60s. Like, what's your name? Norval. Norval? But like, everybody calls me Shaggy. And oh. that's Scooby-Doo. Whoa, groovy names. Groovy? Crystal, you're talking my lingo. And uh, that means the transmissions from Earth were like 30, 40 years old by the time they hit them. So they think everyone, women dress like Cher, <laughs> you know. We first honed in on your television signals sent years ago. Sure, that's why you're disguised the way you are. The television broadcasts you picked up were sent back in the 60s. <laughs> we thought all Earthlings dressed this way. Hey, why mess with a classic look? And her persona is kind of like Cher you know, at, her, at the height of her hippiness. And um, so, you know, we we like mixing it up. Now, the other things you mentioned, the movies past us, I can't really, I can't really uh, comment too much on that because I haven't seen them. Um, and I know some good people worked on those things. There was a producer named Joe Sitka that worked on them down the road. And I worked on the Samurai Samurai Sword one for him. And I thought that was pretty good. I've seen it. And then later on the Spike and Tony who did the, um, um, well, Tony ended up doing the Scoob movie and Spike was the guy who did the Tom and Jerry's with, did some later ones like one with Kiss and, and with the wrestlers and things. And I thought those were really good uh, that I didn't work. I work on Samurai Sword, but I didn't work on those. So, um, there might have been a dip in there somewhere, but um, um, I, you know, I still think they're pretty, 
pretty high quality product. Um, my favorite isn't the one I wrote, it's Zombie Island because after Zombie Island, they told us, that's yeah, a little scary, pull it back a little bit. make it a little sillier. And we did, uh, but Zombie Island's really pure. Zombie Island is a movie where nobody told us what to do and how to do it. And so that's, and Glenn friggin' loves monsters and Jim loves monsters. So between the two of them, they really went, went nuts um, on that one. Yeah, now Zombie Island, I remember, I that's the one I did not hold up with my VHS stack because... Um, it scared me a little too much. That note might have been kind of appropriate. Um, I did have it taped off of the TV, so check out commercial compilation here from it. Uh, but, yeah, no, I, I think those, that and um, Witch's Ghost are, I think, the, th- those are the ones I tend to put on Halloween time because they give me the Halloween feel a little bit more. Um, but, yeah, no, I mean, I just loved, like, all four of them, and we haven't gotten to Cybertrace, which we'll get in a moment, but... Um, yeah, no, you guys did like, just a really great job. And going briefly back to like how you talked about, you know, like the clue of Amber and Crystal being aliens is they're you know, dressed like it's the '60s. That's actually very clever because, in like the mind of a kid in my age range who was age appropriate to watch that, I was always a little like confused, like why they were saying groovy and things that because it, to me, I didn't really as like a six-year-old or however old comprehend as much that oh these are shows that are old they just were brand new to me and just like sometimes the animation's a little weirder and older looking and whatnot um so at first yeah it didn't like really you know seem out of place that you know she's the you know dressed in the 60s as well but i think is very clever with those movies is you modernized fred daphne and velma so they aren't saying the 60s and 70s phrases as much so they are out of as out of place as Shaggy and Scooby are, but that's why you feel like they would be attracted to each other. And you know, I guess he's just kind of a hipster. She's like the perfect girl. Well, a little autobiographical uh, um, confession is: I am 61 years old and I grew up in San Francisco. Meaning, when I was a little kid, I saw Haight Ashbury in the 60s. I saw, I saw the Summer of Love. I mean, I was six years old. But I remember being brought down to Haight-Ashbury, seeing the explosion of that hippie counterculture. And so that, that's kind of in there a little bit. Um, uh, that's a, a thing in my past. I mean, my mom was kind of a hippie. And my dad was kind of a beatnik anyway. And um, the other thing is you'll see a thread through uh, Johnny Quest and uh, SWAT Cats and this movie that I really, really like the American Southwest uh, because each of those shows dipped into that kind of territory because my mother, before she lived in uh, Las Vegas, she lived in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I would make that drive in my little convertible several times a year past the Grand Canyon and and Monument Valley and all these beautiful natural uh, things in the Southwest. And Carlsbad Caverns was one of the most jaw-droppingly amazing things I've ever seen. So I always kind of end up with some sort of big cave sequence thinking about Carlsbad Caverns. And uh, Drew Gentle, who, because I did that in SWAT Cats and I did that in Johnny Quest. And Drew Gentle, who designs all our backgrounds says, Lance, you like these cave shows. You know, that's like twice as much work because you draw things this high and that, and then it's just sky. And with caves, you'd have to fill the whole piece of paper. You know, and I was like, "Ah, but do you like the story? Yeah, yeah, I like the story. I'm now thinking back. It's like, yeah, there were a lot of caves. You know, the whole climax of Zombie Island is in a cave. Um, Yeah. Now, finishing up with um, Alien Vaders, um, with their romance um, and that, I think one of the most beautiful things is how it ends on, like, a very bittersweet note of, like, Scooby and Shaggy looking off into the sky and all that. I hope the guys aren't taking it too hard. Yeah. When I said there's someone out there for everyone, I, I didn't know it meant out there. Um, a few years ago, Warner Brothers did a 
sequel of sorts to Zombie Island, which, you know, needlessly um, answered some of the unnecessary questions that didn't need to be answered and all that with that. Um, do you think, given the love of this one, that there might be a sequel one day where they try and resolve that? Um, my association with uh, uh, Warner Brothers is is seven, eight years in the past was the last time I worked for them. There's no falling out. I just ended up going from job to job that wasn't there. Um, and so when they did, I knew they did a sequel to Zombie Island, but I wasn't really paying attention to it because we didn't do it. And, um, you know, they had their Scooby team in place and somebody wanted to see that. If they do mine, great. Uh, if they do Alien Vaders again, you know, that's fine. So one year later in 2001, we get the last of the big four movies that you and your team worked on. Scooby-Doo and the Cyber Chase, which we've hinted at earlier, but not being as favorable in memories with that one. Um, would you care to talk about that? Well, okay. I'll tell you the good news first. The good news is it looks amazing. The, the animation in it, the design work, it is clear clearly that MOOC Studios had really figured out how to draw those characters after three other movies. And it looks beautiful. And there was a lot of stuff in that to design. Now, the negative aspect, I have to say, is the script was unmakeable as we received it. It didn't really have a mystery in it, didn't make any sense. It had very confusing visual elements like, well, we're gonna have the gang as they were originally designed, meet the, the gang as they're designed now. Zoinks, <gasps> you're me, and like, you're me. Oh, you're the characters in Eric's video game. And you're from the real world. Jeez. But the differences are incredibly subtle and Shaggy and Scooby look the same. And I said, well, how are, that's going to be a nightmare to just keep track of on the board and they have the same voice and, you know, and um, uh, story didn't have any mystery and the story didn't have any real logic or pacing or structure to it. And uh, it was, and it was forced on us. And our argument was one, we'd earned that spot by doing a, a, a great job writing the first three. And then also just, this thing was a bloody mess and what do we do with it? And uh, every minute of working on that was damage control. It came out looking, looking like a million bucks with a story it just doesn't stand up to any kind of scrutiny. And we were really mad to be put on, put on something subpar when we'd earned the right to write them. And the script they threw out that Jim and uh, Davis did was incredibly great idea uh, that was kind of uh, structured on on it. So half the story was how the gang met as kids and the other half was the current day mystery and they tied in together and they reached simultaneous climaxes as you jump back and forth and it's how Shaggy met Scooby and uh, how the gang all got together in the first place. And uh, it was a great haunted house story. It was a great like Lovecraftian Cthulhu gate to another dimension story. And uh, they went, now nah, let's make this cyber chase thing. And we were, it led to fights and that's why we didn't continue because if they were gonna keep sticking us with these ridiculous scripts, then what was the point? You know, we can do a great job on garbage, you know? So that's what I have to say about cyber chase. Boy, it looks good. Watch it with the sound off. Yeah, no, it looks great. It's the, of the four ones, it's the only one that was um, ever released a Blu-ray, oddly enough. So it looks really good, then, if you get the Blu-ray. It's a beautiful-looking film. Now, obviously, your team's involvement ended after Cyber Chase, but given how close these movies were coming out to each other, did you guys work at all on Legend of the Vampire, or was it an immediate pivot to the new team? I did a pass on that, on the fifth movie, like when we got the script, it was just, it was just untenable. And so I did a pass of it and I kind of really leaned into the, the Fred, 
Fred uh, Daphne relationship quite a bit, where they have a big fight at the beginning. This is the thing they didn't make. Uh, they had a big fight at the beginning, and they have harsh words, and they split, and then uh, Daphne's turned into a vampire. And then Fred has to save her from the vampire guy. And I saw him as like a rock and roll guy, but he was kind of like Jim Morrison, you know, the shirtless kind of hippie, really handsome guy. And she's enthralled to him. And of course, Fred is like, oh man, the last thing I said to her was something really mean. And, and um, ultimately to beat them, Shaggy and Scooby have to drink a potion and turn into monsters themselves because that's the way they can fight a real monster. And they didn't do that one. <laughs> God, and that, hearing you describe what that movie was going to be initially, that's the most depressing thing I've ever heard that we didn't get to get that movie. So come on, Warner Brothers, do it, you cowards. Well, listen, Davis is, is happily retired. Jim is happily retired. I'm like two, three years from that myself. Um, Glenn is still, I think, out there plugging. I'm not sure what he's working on. But you know, the band isn't there to get back together by now. And um, they're doing their thing and they're successful enough with it. I, there's no, there's no kind of loyalty, you know, from, well, way back when, you know, 20, 30 years ago, those guys made some really good ones. We had to call them. That's not going to happen. Well, that's obvious with the return to Zombie Island that none of you guys were involved. We would have got that phone call if they did. Like they did a they did a reboot of Animaniacs, and initially no one who worked on the original Animaniacs was allowed to work on it. Uh, I'm not sure why, and I think that changed for the second new season. But I never watched it because uh, even though I had a job and I was very happy at that job, um, and I was not available, the idea that I was not that I was blackballed from a show I was successful on at a studio I was successful at. Um, that was a bitter pill, you know, that made me pretty, pretty angry. Um, and, uh, I don't know if the, those circumstances are still there, but, uh, that like, boy, you know, that didn't make me very happy to hear that. So, and if you look at the credits of the new Animaniacs, there are no, there's no overlap. None of the writers, designers, storyboard people, anybody just the voice actors yeah and it's just such a bizarre logic to have like wow this was a huge hit 30 years ago bring nobody back i i can't explain it somebody had the reasons but um and and listen warner brothers has been very good to me i've uh worked there a lot i was in a you know, i had a great run where I was, I worked on a uh, direct-to-video Flintstone movie that was the most fun I've had in a million years. Worked on a Looney Tunes movie. I worked on some Looney Tunes theatrical shorts. Worked on um, one version of Scooby-Doo called Be Cool, Scooby-Doo. And, and there was overlap. I went from, th oh, and, and there were some Tom and Jerry movies thrown in there. And they kept me rolling on fun projects that came out really good for years and years. And uh, the only reason I left, frankly, was uh, Davis landed at Universal Animation and said, listen, I'm going to get Jim Stenstrom and, and a few other guys who are doing Curious George. We're doing like a preschool show, but it's a six-year gig. You know, it's a six-year order. And in animation, you're really lucky if you're working more than a year on any one thing. And I was, I was happily hopscotching, but the idea of six years working for my favorite boss ever, uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't pass that up. You know, so that's why I left Warner Brothers. And, you know, in the intervening six years, which is an eternity in cartoon time, they found other people to do what I was doing. You know, they had to. And uh, so it would have been really hard to get back in, um, even though I had a good relationship with them. And then it turns out a friend of mine that I worked with at Warner Brothers ended up being the art director, one of the art directors on Rick and Morty. And so I 
he hired me on that. And so it's, it was like, I was heading back to Warner brothers and what well, Rick and Morty wanted me. So, and that's going extremely well, you know, and that got a big pickup. They're going to be doing those for years and years. And I was like, I can probably ride out my career doing that, that show, you know, if they, if they'll have me. So I love Warner brothers, but I, I might never go back there yet unless they offer me a really good writing job or something. Well, that's a you know, shame that, you know, we might not get another Scooby collaboration with all of you guys, but you know, the ones we got, you know, that's um, good enough for the fan base. And, you know, I know you guys were obviously doing your best because of course you were doing your best, but when you were making these, like, you know, now these four movies have are like near mythic proportions in the fan base. Um, did you guys like have any idea like how popular these were or you found out later? No, we, we were pleasantly surprised at how well uh, Zombie Island sold. And then turns out Witches Go sold. And then it turns out uh, Alien Invader sold. Turns out Cyber Chase sold. And that doesn't have a story, you know? So um, you at some point you have to realize like, Unless it's really bad, Scooby-Doo sells no matter what. That's why they keep making it. It's sort of like, uh, you know, Warner Brothers has hundreds of former Hanna-Barbera properties that are like, we're doing Scooby-Doo because they know they can sell it. And they have all of DC Comics and like, we're doing Batman. We're doing Batman. Oh, we're announcing a new project. And I'm like, let me guess who's going to be in that. Oh, yeah, it's Batman, you know we're going to do this weird Aztec thing, but it's Batman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I mean, it's one way of doing business. Uh, the other way of doing business is being like, like Marvel where they take a, a obscure character like Ant-Man and they make a star out of it by doing a great job with them or Guardians of the Galaxy or some of these more obscure characters. And the Warner Brothers strategy is more like who's the top, guy on the chart that's made us the most money, most recognizable to the public. We're obviously going to do that. And in their defense, when um, they were doing the like these kind of Bruce Tim run direct videos, the Batman wants to sell at a certain level. They put out a Wonder Woman one just as well made by the same people. And they did a Green Lantern one just as good by the same people. Didn't sell as well as Batman. So they went back to Batman. And I understand that. I mean, it's a shame because it's like you would love to see, like we mentioned earlier, Johnny Quest make a comeback. And I think now's the time for Johnny Quest. People would love the globetrotting adventure series again. And, you know. Uh, yeah, listen, there's, you know, the one call I would take is uh, Lance, we're going to do 65 Johnny Quests. We're going to put a lot of time and money and resources into them. You're, you're one of the executive producers. And um, we're, you know, the same deal that those guys got in the early 90s. I would, well, I wouldn't even retire. I just, I'd work on that shit till they drop dead, you know. And like, I have a million Johnny Quest ideas. But um, I actually have a lot of SWAT cat ideas that I never got around to. So uh, we'll see, you know, if, listen, if, if I'm just drawing props and vehicles and effects and things for Rick and Morty for the next five, six years and I hang up my hat, that's fine too. You know, there are way worse ways to make a living. And and it's a I love the hell out of that show too. And the people I work with, you know, are great. So um, you know, I've no real regrets. Now, this brings me to my last question. Rounding back to everything we've discussed. Obviously, with properties like Scooby-Doo, Johnny Quest, and other Hanna-Barbera properties like Flintstones, Jetsons, and so on, uh, these are decades-old properties that have spanned generations. So what is the process of stepping into something with that type of legacy? When we got Scooby, Glenn Leopold was the only guy in that room that loved Scooby-Doo. But the other three of us, Davis especially, knew that we were stewards knew that, no, we have to put a mystery in there. We have to do this, have to do that. Because we're not here to make our version of Scooby-Doo, which is just monsters going nuts and scaring the hell out of people. 
which is as adult men, we, we would want to do. We're making it not for us, but for you, okay? The Scooby fan. And we're the stewards of that property. And sometimes you, can, you, you don't necessarily have to be a fan, but when you're making it, you make yourself a fan. And you think like how a fan would think about something. So it's really important. The guys that got Johnny Quest before us were not fans of the original show. And they told me so, the head writer and the head art director both told me how much they did not like the original show and they were going to fix it. And what happened was what happened. And um, it was a disaster that we had to clean up. It was a disaster. And um, stewardship is everything. Like if you get those, I don't care who it is, a Looney Tunes character, any, James Bond, anybody you can think of that has a legacy you have to make it contemporary and relatable and have some elements in it that, so it's not old and stodgy, but you have to do something that won't alienate the people that brought you to the party. You know, you dance with the girl that brung you, right? So if you were gonna new, do a new uh, uh, thing about the shadow, you better not make it a hip hop version, you know, and, and you better like honor the legacy of the shadow. You can do modern cool stuff with it, but you have to, it has to be recognizable or, or don't do it or go home. All right. Well, and I think that's a good note to end on. Um, again, I just want to thank you for coming on. You literally did my childhood and now with Rick and Morty, you're doing my like adult binge watching of, you know, very nihilistic characters doing a lot of fun shit. Yeah. You know, I'm coming in with you. I'm going out with your career as well. So, you know, well, I think that about sums it up. Um, really, I think the only other thing we should mention is this isn't the first time we met. We've actually had a pretty interesting introduction to each other. You want to tell that? Um, we were a little convention called San Diego Comic Fest. It's a great convention because it's real tiny, but they have giant guests. They have guests like that are that are really top end A-listers, and yet you have complete access to them because they're just hanging out. And um, uh, hey, there's Bill Stout, you know, grabbing a bite to eat in the cafeteria. I'll sit down, and chat them up, you know. And I made friends of these things that are really top pros. So I love going to that convention. Where San Diego is impossible, uh, Comic Con's impossible now for me. Uh, it's too, too crowded. But um, I was walking by the table of two classic Hanna Barbera guys, uh, Willie Ito and Tony Benedict, who worked on the original Jetsons and the original Flintstones and things. And they're sweet guys. And um, I looked at my program and said, oh, they're doing this big Doug Wildey panel with Mark Evanier. Um, and, uh, and, and I told them, said, you guys are on a panel in like five minutes. We are? <laughs> and so like, okay, we all hustle into the room. And I sat in the front row. And because they were the cartoony guys, they knew Doug and they loved Doug but they didn't work on the Doug shows because they were over there doing the funny stuff. They're doing top cap things. And Mark Evanier couldn't make it to the convention. So Scott Dunbier, the uh, publisher uh, who does these amazing books of comic art, original comic art and things. But he, he did a book of uh, a big book of Doug Wildey Western comics. That's stunning. And uh, so he worked with the Wildies and knew them a little bit, but they start when the audience started asking Johnny Quest questions, no one on the dais knew the answer. So it was like, uh, excuse me, you know, I was in the second row. I, I know the answer to that and I answer it. And a few minutes later, it happened again. And a few minutes later, it happened again. And Dunbier said, why don't you just get up here? And I kind of just took over, you know, and I tried to, I tried to throw stuff F the other two guys and or other three guys and keep them engaged but really the questions that were coming hard and fast were things that I knew specifically that they probably didn't you know where they know everything about other things um you know but on that subject yeah I, I kind of 
I kind of took over. <laughs> and then you came up to me after you said, oh, I got to interview my podcast. So I wasn't even on that panel, but all right. Yeah, it was a very happy accent because you introduce yourself and I'm like, why does that name sound very familiar? Because it was like just <laughs> children's books, movies and all that. Like it just burned in the back of my head. I'm like, I'm sitting there and, you know, me and my friends went and, you know, I shouldn't admit this, but, you know, we decided to sneak a little booze in. So we were drinking a little bit. So I'm a little <laughs> buzzed at this point. <laughs> And I'm like, so like a fog is in there. And then you say Scooby-Doo. I'm like, oh, holy shit. Like now I remember it came flooding. And yeah, no, it was a very happy um, accident. You know, it was great hearing from those guys. But yeah, you um, really saved the panel to talking about, you know, Johnny Quest and Doug and all that. Well, I'll tell you, post uh, panel, uh, I, you know, I took Willie out to lunch and we chatted, found out we had a lot in common, a lot of friends and things. And since then, I've seen him socially, you know, uh, visited Willie. He's a, uh, an incredible, legendary legacy talent at Disney and Hanna-Barbera, different places. And his career makes mine look like a, like the guy that flipped the water bottles in the studio, you know, he has a, he's a legend. And Tony also, you know, so it's just, they happen to be playing in a sandbox that was my sandbox. So, and well, it was great talking to you, Lance, like always. So, yeah, we'll have to have you back sometime. Maybe we can do a commentary for Johnny Quest or Scooby Doo or something. Thank you, Andrew. And uh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, we'll talk soon. Well, have a good night, everybody.